Hey, it is so great to be here this amazing weekend in August, and I welcome all of you to worship today at all of our different locations at all the sites. And let me ask you a question. Uh, what would it be worth to you if you had some sure fire formula for bringing out the best in other people? What would you give for that? Well, corporations would probably be, give billions because when workers don't get along and bring out the best in each other, there's a reduced bottom line and it destroys morale in the workplace. Certainly married couples, that would be worth a good penny to them. Boy, when you get married and you uh, do life together, when you... Uh, make this commitment of matrimony, I'll tell you, you really need to know how to bring out the best in your spouse because if marriage isn't going well, it affects everything in life. I would think that coaches would see that formula as incredibly valuable because uh, franchise owners and managers and sports uh, coaches understand that if a team doesn't have a chemistry, if, if these players aren't really gelling and working together as a team, they're not going to win games and there's no chance of them winning a championship. But what would it be worth to you personally if you had a sure-fire formula, some way of really bringing out the best in the people that you care the most about? Well, that's really what Peter is talking about today in this section we come to in this book called First Peter. I invite you to open your Bible there if you have a copy of your own. And we're going to look together, and we're going to go back to the part we left off with last week. That is the last part of chapter 2, starting in verse 21 in just a moment. And uh, we're going to begin there, and then we're going to go on into chapter 3 as Peter talks to us about the ultimate example, he talks to us about how to bring out the best in your spouse, and then he really has a section that is just good for bringing out the best in anyone. And I want to tell you, I don't know what you may be going through, whether you consider your life in a hard place or whether you're prospering right now and life is just cruising, but I want to tell you something. The principles that we're talking about today in these moments together are so important I invite you to have ears to hear and a heart ready to obey what God is showing us through his word. So let's go on this journey together. The first thing I want you to see is what I would call the ultimate example for everyone. The ultimate example for everyone. And we're going back now to chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Look at what he says. For you have been called for this purpose... Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, the word example there in that verse is very, very interesting. It's the word for mimicking something. It's the word that would be used if a, if a son, let's say, looks at his dad, you know, who's, who's five times bigger than him and a whole lot older, and he just tries to mimic his dad's actions and words. 
He wants to grow up and be like his dad. It's the word that would be used if a child took a piece of carbon paper and tried to trace a word precisely to, to copy that letter. That would be the word used. And what a powerful message that is. Christ is our example. Charles Sheldon wrote a book back in the 1800s called In His Steps. And the basic question in that book is, what would Jesus do in this situation? If he were me, what would Jesus do? That's always the ultimate question for the Christian. But he goes on here and says this, who committed no sin, describing Jesus now, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Again, Jesus here is being given as our ultimate example for life, for living, for leaving a legacy, the ultimate example for bringing out the best in others. And there as it describes him on the cross as he was going through his passion. As we said last week, Jesus didn't have to endure that. He could have called the 10,000 angels as people were mocking him saying, if you're really the Christ, come down, save yourself, save all of us. As they mocked him, as they spat upon him, as they ridiculed him and crucified him, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels, but instead he kept entrusting himself to God the Father that he knew judges righteously, that he knew still had it all under control, that he knew was working a marvelous plan. And by the way, one of the things that we're going to see today as we study this text is that there will be times in our life when we wonder, is God, is God really in control here? And if you're going to bring out the best in others, you can't hit the panic button. Too often as believers, we're, we're hitting the panic button and we're beginning to do our own thing, trust in our own understanding, go our own way, when if we could just do what Jesus did in his humanness, fully human, fully divine. And he kept entrusting himself to him, God the Father, who judges righteously. He knew his father had it under control. The text goes on. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. And the final verse, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What would you give if you had a formula for bringing out the best in others. Jesus is ultimately the example. And what Peter is saying to us here is, look, no matter where you go, no matter what situation you're in, whether you're married or unmarried, young or old, rich or poor, slave or free, it doesn't matter what your situation is, Jesus is your ultimate example. It would be a hugely valuable thing in our own Christian walk if we just regularly reminded ourselves of that. What would, what would Jesus do here? Okay? So now, I want us to look at a section here that I'm calling How to Bring Out the Best in Your Spouse. Now, I realize that many among us today are not married. Uh, you may have a significant relationship with someone. You may not. 
I would guess at least 50% of our congregation is married. But for those of you who are not, listen, don't just totally check out right here because I think you're going to hear some principles here that would be valuable for any of your relationships as well. How to, how to bring out the best in your spouse. Uh, on an isolated European airfield decades ago, there was a little twin-engine plane that was revving up its engines, getting ready to hurtle down the runway and fly off, take off out into the night. There was a horrible lightning storm going on. I mean, it was, it was really intense. And a lone figure suddenly raced across the airfield, and its silhouette was occasionally highlighted by these flashes of lightning. And this figure went onto the plane and had a short but very heated discussion with the pilot. And then he turned to the few passengers that were there. It wasn't a lot of people. And he said, my name is Walter Beach. I designed this aircraft. I made it. And uh, I know what it can and cannot do. And he said, uh, I know your trip may be important to you, and you may have some very important things to do, and you may feel it's urgent that you leave here and get in the air. But I want to tell you, I urge you to get off this plane and not take this flight in these conditions. I don't believe the plane can do this. He was interrupted by the pilot who said to the passengers, I have flown this plane for years. I know what it can do. And I am fully confident that we can make it to our destination. We're going to take off in a few minutes. I urge you, folks, to stay on the plane. You're going to be fine. One passenger out of those few that were on the plane, one passenger chose to disembark with Walter Beach and take his advice and his warning. Her name was Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of the President of the United States. A few minutes after takeoff, the plane crashed and everybody on board lost their life. Now, the reason I tell you that sobering story is because the passage we're about to read is a very important one. And we need to remember as we read this, it was written by the one who designed the plane, the one who designed marriage, the one who designed life. We also need to remember there are a whole lot of marital crashes out there, a lot of devastation. And you know what? We would really do a lot better if we just acknowledge what we said last week, that, that God actually has a right to speak into our lives. That's what the Christ follower acknowledges, that, no, I'm not here just through my own reason or, or through the latest trends or fads to decide what's best. No, God has a right, when it comes to my lifestyle, to to speak into my life, and that's, that's what Scripture is all about. So let's look at it together. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, Deb and I were lying in bed the other night, and, and uh, we're talking about a number of things, and, and uh she said, hey, where do we get to in 1 Peter? I can't remember. What are you preaching on this weekend? And so I quickly just quoted this passage to her, and I said, that's what we're, that's what we're covering this week. There was a moment of silence. She said, how are you going to preach on that? 
boy, that's tough. And I said, pray for me, all right? So this is one challenging passage. In our culture, it's one that is very obviously politically incorrect. But let me stick with the flying analogy for a moment and tell you how this works. A plane has a pilot and a co-pilot. And I believe this image works pretty well. Here, let me tell you how it works with Deb and myself. This is how it works for us. And God has led us to have a very healthy, by his grace, very wonderful relationship with very little conflict and a whole lot of productivity and joy. Uh, what Deb and I do is we look at the passages in the Bible, and there are three of them. This is one. There's also one in Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5 where wives in a marital relationship are specifically told, be submissive to your husbands. We also look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, which says to husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we take all those passages about submission, the one that says there's to be a mutual submission relationship where we're deferring a lot to one another, and the one that says, wives, be submissive to your husbands, and we just kind of meld those together, and it makes a pretty good formula. So here's what that looks like for us. I'm the acknowledged leader in our family. Our kids know that. Deb knows that. But that's never talked about. I have never once in my life said, well, I'm the leader here. Well, hey, I get to make this decision because, after all, wives are supposed to submit, and I'm the leader in this. That, that language has never been spoken. That would be so gross and out of place, in my opinion, in a home. It, it would be crazy. Uh, we never sit around and discuss it, even. I like what Beth Moore says about this whole submission thing. Beth Moore, in talking to women, says, women, submission is the acknowledgement of God's delegated leadership in the home. It's like a pilot and a co-pilot. The co-pilot may be more brilliant or more trained or more knowledgeable than the pilot. The pilot, co-pilot may fly the plane as much as the pilot, but there needs to be somebody who is the acknowledged leader. And so Beth Moore says to women, submission, ladies, is you ducking so God can hit your husband. That's what it is. And I like that. She's a brilliant Bible teacher, and she's got great insight that, there. Because here's the thing. I believe that God has put with husbands a tremendous amount of accountability and responsibility for what happens in the home. Man, I hope you're ready to hear that. Those of you married guys, you've got a tremendous responsibility. And I'm going to get to you later. Right now, Peter is speaking specifically to wives, but... Hold on, hold on to your hat. I'm going to get to you in just a minute, and I hope you're ready for it, all right? So it's this voluntary thing. It's a thing that's an acknowledged kind of order in the home. And the way we work it is Deb makes far, by far, most of the decisions in our home. Uh, probably 80, 90% would be my guess. Sometimes we dialogue about them, sometimes we don't. But if we came to an impasse, something that we prayed about, discussed lovingly, talked about together, uh, she would say, this is really your call. And I'm going to follow your lead on this. I'm going to follow your lead. And that's the way it works for us. And it has worked with incredible 
beauty. The text goes on to say in verse 3, continuing his input for women, and let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Now, the word for adornment there is the word cosmos. It's the word for world. Uh, It literally means beauty. The world is a beautiful place the way God designed it, and, and God has made humans, he's made specifically women here, to be beautiful creatures. But what does Peter mean when he says, don't let your adornment be merely external? You see, some Christian groups throughout the years have kind of fixated on this passage, and they couple with it 1 Timothy chapter 2, which says some similar things, and they've come up with this belief that women should always look frumpy and plain, okay? Maybe you've met some Christians like that. I find it a little weird myself, but... uh, uh, they, they don't believe in wearing any makeup. They don't believe in any kind of mascara, eyeliner. Don't ever do anything much with your hair. Just, just look plain, and that's the way to please God. Can I tell you something? No husband wants his wife to look like a fundamentalist, all right? <laughs> Trust me on this. I like what the crusty old preacher Billy Sunday, the great evangelist in the early 1900s, said when a lot of people were kind of into that movement of women looking really frumpy and plain, they would ask him, is it okay for women to wear makeup? And I love his quip, and women would howl when he would say this. He said, well, if the bar needs paint, and paint it. <laughs> and women just cackled at that. They just love that, because we all need a little help, don't we? Yeah. Doesn't matter who it is. And so I don't believe Peter is saying here, no makeup, no jewelry. Don't worry about what you look like on the outside. Notice the word merely external. I think God wants men and women to look their best. But what he's saying there to women is, look, you should put an equal emphasis upon your inner beauty, not just the exterior. I talked to a man recently that I'd known for a long time. He was not a member of the church, but he came occasionally. And I knew he and his wife, his, his, his wife was gorgeous, really, just one of these people that's stunningly beautiful. And I was shocked when he said to me, I'm divorcing my wife. And I, I, was, I said, I'm very sad to hear that. He said, yeah, if, if you lived with that acid tongue and that self-centered spirit every day, after a while, you just don't notice the beauty, he said to me. <laughs> There's an interesting verse in Proverbs eleven twenty-two: Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Let... Your inner beauty outshine your outer beauty if one has to outshine the other. So women, I would simply put this challenge before you here. Just something to consider. How much time, don't blurt it out please, how much time do you spend getting ready every day? The makeup, the hair, all of the primping and all of the mascara, all the everything. I would challenge you, just a little challenge. I would challenge you, if you're a follower of Christ, 
to not neglect the outer appearance at all, but to spend at least as much time working on your inner beauty as you do your outer beauty. Really. Become a holistic person. Don't just try to look like a knockout. Try to be a knockout for God. Try to be a truly beautiful woman inside and out. Spend some time in God's word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time serving other people. Spend time with some of your spiritual disciplines so that you're giving at least as much effort on the inner beauty as you are the outer beauty. Peter goes on to say in verse 5, For in this way in former times the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Calling him Lord? Boy, that's a weird one, isn't it? It was a way that she showed respect and deference to her husband, Abraham. Now, uh, I personally don't know of any husband who wants his wife to call him Lord. If you do, I'd say you may have some issues. I'm just saying, I can recommend a couple of good psychologists to you who can help you with that, all right? I don't know of any man personally who wants his wife to call him Lord, but I know a whole bunch of Christian husbands who really wish their wives showed more respect. Ooh, yeah. It's really true. And so, now, man, I'm getting to you in a minute. We're talking to the women right now, okay? So this is going to get really fun in just a minute. But a lot of men are desperately yearning to be a hero to the wife. Do you see men walking around out in the lobby? A lot of times they'll be injured. I saw a guy recently. He was limping along, had a big brace on his leg. I said, Joe, what happened, dude? His wife answered. She said, ah, he was playing football with some college guys. And we, we, we do things. We play sports that we ought not be playing. Way after we ought to, we should have stopped playing them. We want to be heroic. We want to be a hero to our wife. So many guys feel that way. Now, speaking of calling someone Lord, Debbie and I have a funny story from our wedding years ago. 20-something years ago, when we got married, uh, we, we did our own vows. And I think that's really a nice thing to do. So we memorized our vows. We wrote our own vows out and, and internalized them. We really wanted to say them with meaning. We just didn't want to repeat by rote some, some you know, uh, old vows. And so we wrote them out. And Deb kind of did this creative thing where she sort of made her vows a prayer. And so part of the time she was talking to God and part of the time she was talking to me. And at one point in the vows, Deb, with all the pressure, got mixed up and she called me Lord. We're standing like this on the stage holding hands. She's calling me Lord in her vows. And I turned to the crowd. There was 400 and some people there. And I said, getting off to a good start. I didn't think we we're going to get the place under control again. People were losing it. But no normal guy wants his wife to call him Lord. But he does want the respect that that signified when Sarah called her husband that. Well, isn't this interesting? I find this kind of humorous. After six intense verses to wives, Peter gives one verse to husbands. 
What do you make of that? What do you make of that? Does he know husbands are just so hard-headed they're not going to get it anyway? I don't know. But he just gives one verse to husbands here. But man, is it interesting. Verse 7. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she's a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Live with your wives in an understanding way, a considerate way, a compassionate way. The, verb, the, verse, the word is translated in different ways there. Now, some time back, I asked some, a group of women I knew, all of them married, to, to tell me some ways that their husbands live in an understanding way with them and show consideration to them. Or, if they don't do it, ways they wish they would. And here's what shocked me about all the responses I got from these women. I thought it would be like huge things. Uh, live with integrity. Be faithful. Work hard. No, not, nobody said that. Everybody focused on things that most guys think are little insignificant things. Can I tell you some of the things they said? It was amazing to me. Bring in the garbage uh, can out from the street without being asked. Take it out without being asked or nagged. Pick up a vacuum cleaner every now and then and just do something without, without being asked. Tell me how you feel about me without me having to bring the subject up because I'm wondering how you feel. Call if you're going to be late so I'm not sitting there wondering where you are. And on and on. The list went. And here's the conclusion I've come to, folks. I really believe this. I believe if husbands in America would live with their wives in an understanding, considerate way, just show some compassion, just show some proper etiquette in the home, just be polite, I believe that 75% of the marital, marital difficulties that, are, that exist would be solved just like that. Just like that if husbands would live with their wives in an understanding way. I truly, truly believe that. One survey I read in preparation for this said that now in America, men who've been married at least 10 years, this is shocking. If you've been married at least 10 years, the average time dialoguing with your wife face-to-face, -face, no distractions, is 37 minutes a week. That is barely over five minutes a day. No wonder there's so many marital challenges. Living with your wife in an understanding way means that you try to understand her. Make your wife, men, make your wife your study for the rest of your life. Study her. Figure her out. Let me ask you. Let me put you on the spot. Do you know your wife's greatest fear? Do you know your wife's greatest worry? Do you know what brings your wife the most joy of anything else in the world? You need to become a student of your wife. You need to know how she's wired. Now, 
It gets complex. I don't know anybody who can fully figure that out. Wives with husbands or husbands with wives. But you need to make that your goal. Live with your wife in an understanding way. Because Peter says something here in the latter part of verse 7 that I find very interesting. He says, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, how would your prayers be hindered by not living with your wife in an understanding way? Well, there's one of two options for what that could mean. One, it could mean because you're fighting and bickering and not getting along, naturally, you don't come together and pray together. So your prayers are hindered because of the strife that's there. You're simply not coming together and, and praying. But it could also mean that because you're at odds with your wife and you're not practicing forgiveness and compassion and understanding, you're actually engaged in sinful activity with your wife, God reserves the right to defer an answer to that prayer. As the psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear. Cherishing sin means I know I'm doing something wrong and I go ahead and cherish it, do it, keep on doing it anyway and cherish that sin in my heart, God says, I'll not even hear your prayer. I know that's a strong word, but it is so important in the home that we bring out the best in our spouse. Practice these principles because the one who designed the plane knows what it can and cannot take, and he has a right to speak into our lives. And so for the final minutes together, I want to talk to you now briefly about how to live in harmony and bring out the best in just about anyone. And I want to give you three quick practical suggestions. This is for everyone in any of your relationships, workplace, home, school, neighborhood, any of your situations, this is the way to bring out the best in others. Suggestion number one would be, be sensitive and humble. Look at what Peter says in verse 8. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Now, do you catch the warmth in those words? That means that we're raising our emotional IQ or excuse me, EQ, a little bit. We just finished this week at our Half Moon site, a marvelous leadership summit put on by the Willow Creek Association. The leadership summit is a marvelous annual event. And one of the things that I heard over and over again from some of our top leaders in the nation, people who are effective leaders, is look, good leaders have to have a high EQ. They didn't always say it in those words, but they talked about caring for people. They talked about, look, if your employees think you don't even give a rip about them, they're not going to give you their best effort. One of the ways to bring out the best in others in any situation is to be sensitive and to be humble. Romans 12, 15 puts it like this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Now, I've found in life it's a lot easier to rejoice with those who rejoice than to, or excuse me, to mourn with those who mourn than rejoice with those who rejoice. Here's what I mean. Uh, you know, 
it's one thing to say to your neighbor, hey, you're building a new house. You know, congratulations. Hey, I, I see your, your, your child is, is on the dean's list. Pray for mine. He's struggling. Hey, I see you won a trip to Hawaii this year. Man, that is off the hook. Man, that's amazing. Awesome. Good for you. Hey, congratulations on your team doing so well this year. Mine is just, they're in the pits. That is so much better. That kind of sensitive, humble spirit is so much better than saying, oh, I see you're building a new house. Well, you know, some of us are really sacrificing for the kingdom of God around here. We can't afford a new house. Oh, I see your child made the dean's list. Well, mine doesn't cheat. I hope your team is humiliated next year. That's not the way to win friends and influence people. George Whitfield and John Wesley were great friends. They were both great preachers, great leaders in England, Great Britain. And it was through the urging of George Whitfield that John Wesley had actually started preaching. And when Whitfield died, John Wesley attended his friend's funeral. And one of Whitfield's uh, followers was there. And by the way, even though they had been friends, they had had a rift over theology over what predestination means. And Whitfield was more of a Calvinist and Wesley more of an Arminian. And one of Whitfield's followers said, Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see Dr. Whitfield in heaven? And he said, no. And she said, that's what I thought you would say. She knew about their rift. He said, oh, no, ma'am, please don't misunderstand me. People like Dr. Whitfield will be so close to the throne of God, I won't even get a glimpse of him. That's the kind of sensitive, humble spirit that helps build camaraderie and relationships and goes a long way toward establishing effective teams. A second thing Peter tells us here is develop a forgiving spirit. Now, forgiveness is not a single act. He's talking here, I believe, about an attitude that pervades life. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you're called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. See, it's our human nature to get back. Would you agree? Somebody does something to us, we want to get back at them. But this says that if you want to bring out the best in others, develop a forgiving, magnanimous spirit. I read an article from uh, Liberal, Liberal Oklahoma, I believe it was, or Kansas. Kansas I'm sorry. Liberal, Can Liberal is a city, by the way. It's named Liberal. Interesting name for a city. It's kind of a small town, 22,000 people, I think. And uh, an elderly woman in a, in a great, big, expensive car went around the block five times trying to find a parking place in front of the store she wanted to go into. And she finally saw an open one. But just as she was trying to make her way into that parking split space, kind of slowly and carefully, this young guy in a really fancy sports car zoomed right in in front of her and and took the parking place, and she couldn't get in. She got out of her car all exasperated and said, young man, why did you do that? And he strutted by and said, because I'm young and I'm fast. And he strutted on into the store. Five minutes later, he came back out and was amazed to see that this elderly woman was taking her car and using it as a battering ram against his little sports car, turning it into an accordion. He said, lady, why are you doing that? She said, because I'm old and I'm rich. <laughs> that 
That's the way we are. We, we want to get back at people. And I'm amazed how many people in the church who've been following Christ for years who don't take this seriously. Friend, I want to tell you something. If you play the get even game, you never know when the game's finished, first of all. And you eat yourself up with bitterness in the process. Unforgiveness is an acid that eats you up from the inside. We set people free and we set ourselves free when we practice a forgiving spirit. And finally, number three, maintain a positive attitude toward life. Now here, Peter is about to quote from Psalm 34. If you're interested in the full psalm, you can go home and read this later. Psalm 34 is a marvelous psalm. Look at what he says. For, and then he begins to quote, let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. I love that passage because it says that for the believer in Christ... We're supposed to love life. Are you loving life today? Are you living the abundant life like Jesus talked about in John 10, 10? You know, I get excited when I hear people occasionally say, and I hear this pretty often, you know, you folks laugh a lot in your church. And I say, yeah, we do. We really like to enjoy ourselves. We like to sing. We like to clap. We like to just laugh and have a good time. We, we believe that church ought to not be boring. And I often add something like this. You know what? If anybody ought to be able to love life, shouldn't it be the Christian? I mean, think about it. Shouldn't the Christian love life? You got your sins forgiven? No more condemnation? Are you kidding me? That makes me want to laugh with joy. You're adopted into God's family, this forever family, where he's not going to give up on you? Are you kidding me? That makes me want to yell with happiness. And he's changing us from the inside out. Boy, I tell you, that's a good deal. If anybody ought to love life, it ought to be the Christian. Are you loving life today? He goes on to say in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, when you first read that, you may go, wow, that's intimidating. The eyes of the Lord are on me. Oh man, that's scary. But when you think about it for a while as a believer, that ought to be encouraging. He loves me so much, he can't take his eyes off of me. So as we close today, let me ask you, the way you're living right now, are you bringing out the best in other people? Are you following the ultimate example of Christ? If you're married, are you bringing out the best in your spouse? And are you following these principles about loving life that are bringing out the best in others? I like to be around people like that with a positive spirit. I saw an interview recently with a 100-year-old woman in a nursing home, and I'm going to close with what she said because I love her attitude. She was asked, this 100-year-old woman in the nursing home was asked, she had the mind kind of like a little child, do you have any children? She said, not yet. <laughs> I want to be around that woman. Man, she's positive. Now, there's a few hours left in this day. Are you going to mope around and feel sorry for yourself and blame other people 
or are you going to love life and say, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Are you going to celebrate the life he's given and bring out the best in others? Father, help us to be the kind of people who really love life. Help us to follow the example of Jesus who while being reviled did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Help us to know that you've got it under control. In the home, in the workplace, in the neighborhood of the school, wherever we find ourselves, help us to practice these principles of being humble and sensitive, of being forgiving in our spirit, oh Lord, and of really keeping a positive attitude. And may we experience the abundant life that you designed. In Jesus' name, amen.